Are you looking for ways to strengthen your marriage? Would you like to raise children you enjoy being around? Do you long for a peaceful, orderly home that's a blessing to everyone who comes through its doors? Then you've come to the right place. I'm Jennifer Flanders, a Bible-believing, homeschooling mother to 12 and host of the Loving Life at Home podcast. Join me as we discover what God's Word has to say about marriage, motherhood, and minding the things that matter most. Hello, friend. I'm so glad you're joining me for another episode of Loving Life at Home. Today, I'd like to talk about focus and mindset and how both those things affect our ability to find what we're looking for in life. Now, before I get into it, I need to provide a little bit of background. I've told you some of this before, but just in case you're tuning in new, my husband and I were married very young. He worked three jobs while going to night school. When we were first married, I was teaching as a lab instructor instructor for business calculus students at SMU and doing my graduate work. And we lived in this little rundown apartment complex populated with drug dealers and strippers and carjackers. And about the time my husband finished his bachelor's degree and started medical school, our first baby arrived. So I dropped out of my master's program to stay home with my little one, and he started medical school. We had two more babies before he finished medical school, and the oldest of those babies developed type 1 diabetes when he was only 22 months old. By that time, we were both extremely busy. He was busy with his coursework, my husband was, and his clinicals. I was busy taking care of our growing family, and neither of us had time to hold down a paying job. So we bought everything secondhand, and we lived off of school loans during that period. We didn't feel particularly poor. Rather, we felt extremely blessed, but that evidently is not the way a lot of folks viewed our situation. And I know this for a fact because when my husband was doing his medical school residency, he had an attending physician who truly seemed bewildered by Doug's happiness. He would ask, why are you always so cheerful? You're poor. You live in a ratty apartment. Your son has diabetes. What do you have to smile about? And that contrast was even more irksome in light of the attending's personal unhappiness. He lived in a mansion. He had a high-paying job. He was well-respected in his community, yet he remained miserable and dissatisfied. So what could explain this huge difference in their attitudes? Bottom line, it was the Lord. Yet, even Christians can sometimes have a difficult time cultivating contentment. On a day-to-day level, much of the differences lie in our mindset. We tend to find what we look for. If all I can see is the negative, then I may need to change my focus. It goes back to that old question, is the glass half full or half empty? Well, in case you haven't figured it out yet, neither of those answers is correct. The glass is 100% full. It's half filled with water and half filled with air. You see, perspective matters. Colossians 3, 1 through 3 says, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye are dead and your life is hidden with Christ in God. 
That is the whole purpose for which we are created, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Christ came that we could have life and have it more abundantly. Now, that is not some sort of prosperity, name it, claim it promise. It is a call to count our blessings and to recognize the abundance that God has already provided. Psalm 103.2 tells us, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of His benefits. So, when I talk about this mindset, and perspective change and finding what you're looking for, I want to encourage you to look for good things around you. When I walk into my backyard, I can see dirt and weeds and bare patches and slugs, but simultaneously I can find green grass and singing birds and towering trees and vibrant blooms. It all depends upon what I am hunting. Of course, Right now, there's not that many towering trees except in our neighbor's yard because we're living in a rent house with no sprinkler system and very little in the way of real grass. So the bare patches and weeds are far more plentiful right now than we've ever dealt with before. But do you know what I did? I painted fruit trees and shrubbery and tulips and marigolds on the concrete wall that runs the length of our backyard. I'll try to link a picture of it in the show notes. So now when I'm standing at my kitchen window looking outside or if I'm in the backyard, that's what I look at. That's what I see. And it makes me happy when I do. The same principle of finding what you look for is true whenever I walk into my child's bedroom. Depending on how I view it, I might notice the dirty socks on the floor, or the dust bunnies in the corner, or an overflowing trash can. But by slightly lifting my eyes, I'll spot the neatly made bed, and the beautiful artwork in progress that's spread across the desk, or the piles of books on my voracious reader's nightstand, maybe even the uneasy teen herself who's watching me inspect her space and is hungering for my approval. I'm not just saying this theoretically. I am calling up memories of my own child-rearing experience because for years, my eyes would be drawn to the negatives and not the positives. For years, I've offered a free printable room inspection form on our family's website, and I'll link that in the show notes also. But what you may not realize is that I created that as much for myself as I did for my kids. It gives them a practical list of what quote, cleaning your bedroom should actually entail, but it also serves as a reminder to me to look for and commend the many, many, many good things that they're doing, the many things that they're doing right, instead of fixing my eyes on those few things that they miss. That's why if they earned 85% or more on a given room inspection, they passed and I called it good. And I didn't perseverate on the fact that their drawers were so messy I could barely close them at times. If 85% of it was tended to, then it really was good enough. Now, not only do you need to look for good things around you, but you also should look for good things about you. When you look in the mirror, do you bemoan the wrinkles gathering on your forehead or maybe the bladder that refuses to do its job anytime you sneeze or laugh? Or the baby weight that stubbornly clings to your middle nearly a decade past your last pregnancy? Or maybe I'm just projecting. What if, rather than perseverating on our perceived shortcomings, we rejoiced over our strengths? What if I thank God for the strong arms that can carry grandbabies and groceries and garden clippings with ease? Or I praise Him for eyes that can see the smiles on my children's faces and the glory of a beautiful sunset? Or with help from my reader's 
the soul-stirring words on a written page? What if I genuinely felt grateful for a sound mind that can easily recall the names of all my grandchildren and construct a rational argument or compose a letter to a friend or pen a column for my local paper? All those things are wonderful blessings, and God is glorified when we recognize Him as such and we praise Him for His lavish goodness towards us. So, look for the good around you, look for the good about you, and finally, look for the good in your loved ones. Probably one of the most important places that we should hunt for the good instead of searching for the bad is in marriage. Because the fact is, if you are married at all, you are married to a sinner, and so is he. There is no other option. And if you go looking for a fence, you're sure to find it. A hurtful word, an irritated tone, maybe a forgotten anniversary. After more than three decades of living with my husband, I've realized that most of the habits that are prone to upset me are really relatively minor. For instance, he looks at his phone instead of listening, so I'm forced to repeat myself. He spends money on frivolous purchases defined as anything that I don't think is necessary. He throws away things or takes them to goodwill without asking. Just yesterday, he tossed out a pair of my best titanium scissors because they wouldn't cut. And if they truly wouldn't cut, that would be the place for them would be in the trash. But fortunately, I heard the scissors hit the bottom of the trash can and came running and rescued them. They were only malfunctioning because one of our kids had used them to cut a bunch of duct tape and they'd gotten sticky. So I cleaned the blades with an alcohol swab and they are now as good as new and hanging back where they belong. Also, my husband forgets to buckle his seatbelt and the car alarm drives me crazy. Those dinging chimes do not seem to bother him in the least. And really, that's probably a good thing because as an anesthesiologist, he deals all day every day with patients who are hooked up to every kind of monitor you can imagine, keeping track of their heart rate and their pulse and their oxygen. So if those steady little bleep, 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 really got under his skin like they get under mine, he'd be in big trouble. Something that does get under his skin, though, is my nagging him about his seatbelt, particularly since the reason he fails to put it on usually has to do something with the fact that he is distracted by his own thoughts. So I've learned to make peace with that car alarm until he's worked through his thoughts enough to buckle on without incessant reminders from me. The way I did this was to set the chimes to music. So, ding, ding, ding. Ding! Hark how the bells, sweet silver bells, all seem to say, throw cares away. Christmas is here, bringing a cheer to young and old, meek and the bold. You get the idea. Whenever I start singing that, Doug usually fastens his seatbelt long before we ever get to that first chord change in the song. In another car, it was bum bum, bum bum, look down, look down, you're standing in your grave from Les Miserables. As for the nagging, We may be splitting hairs here, but my singing doesn't seem to bother Doug at all. It's been a great compromise for us. He would so much rather hear me hum cheerfully in the seat next to him than to scold, Doug, for Pete's sake, will you put on your seatbelt? The car alarm's driving me bananas. You get the idea. But now I've gotten sidetracked. The point is, if I stood on those trivial offenses long enough, I could really work myself up into a state of frustrated annoyance. But why do that? especially when by shifting my focus, I can change my whole perspective. When I actively search for the good in my husband, I easily find it. I see an incredibly hard worker who comes home from 12-hour shifts at the hospital and launches immediately and cheerfully into doing multiple loads of laundry just to help me out and possibly to ensure that his drawers stay stocked with clean scrubs and underwear. 
I see a man so incredibly generous that he routinely tips 30% or more on the meals we eat out and willingly gives to worthy causes, even if it means sacrificing himself to do so. I see an animated storyteller who can send an entire room full of people into fits of hysterical laughter. I see a loving father who prays daily and earnestly for his children, having dedicated his life to helping them to succeed, while also understanding that success is not possible apart from God's blessing. When I look at my husband this way, I don't feel annoyed or exasperated at all. Far from it. Instead, my heart fills to bursting with love and respect and admiration. Yet in every one of those cases, my circumstances remain unaltered. Only my perspective changes. But what an amazing change such a mental shift can make. What's more, I've realized that many of those things that tend to frustrate me about Doug are simply the flip side of the traits that I most admire. If he's upset or frustrated with me for any reason, I'm going to hear exactly what he's thinking. But He's also an excellent communicator in general, so I hear all the good stuff as well. He talks to me every single day and even writes himself notes to remind him of stuff he wants to tell me when he gets home from work, and I love that about him. Sure, he buys sweet tea and candy and other stuff that we don't need, but he is also generous with others, and he views money as a tool and nothing more. It doesn't have a strong hold on him, which is a very good thing. And even the seatbelt situation indicates a willingness to take risks. As somebody that won't even shift out of park until my seatbelt is securely fastened, I think it is reckless to drive without one. But there are lots of people in this world who would also view having 12 children as reckless. The fact that I had three of them in my 40s automatically put me in a, quote, high-risk category due to advanced maternal age. But I am eternally grateful that my husband was not so risk-averse as to call it quits after two or three or even 10. And that realization helps me to keep things in proper perspective because perspective matters and what we look for matters. Yesterday, I finished reading a wonderful book that my daughter recommended. It was called Everything Sad is Untrue, written by Daniel Neary. It won all sorts of awards. It was named uh, Best of the Year back in 2020 by New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Publishers Weekly. It won over a dozen other accolades and prestigious awards as well. It's part myth, part memoir, part history, part cultural lesson. Really, is an amazing book, but I'm surprised that it won so many awards because a pivotal point in the book was the fact that Nayiri's mother converted to Christianity, and that is why they had to flee Iran, because there was a fatwa on her head. She would have been killed if she stayed, and likely her children with her. And so, in one of the final chapters of the book, the author is discussing the two kinds of people that you find in a refugee camp. He spent a good while in a refugee camp in Italy and was describing that experience. And he said that Some of the people there, it was like they were dead inside. They were despairing. They had no hope for a better future. Even if they were to get asylum in another country, they felt like the troubles and difficulties would just follow them anywhere they went. And they had a very bleak outlook. 
and a very uh, negative perspective. Then other people in the refugee camp were like his mother that viewed the waiting as part of life. Some people viewed their life as what was going to start once they left the camp. But his mother viewed the camp as part of her life, and she wanted to wait well. She was a Christian. She had a lot of hope for the future, and she made good use of her time in the refugee camp to help her children learn and grow and prepare them for their life ultimately in the United States. It kind of reminded me of a quote that you probably have heard from Martha Washington. She said, I am determined to be cheerful and happy in whatever situation I may find myself, for I have learned that the greater part of our misery or unhappiness is determined not by our circumstances, but by our disposition. And that's something that Daniel Neryuri's mom recognized, and something that we need to understand as well, that our happiness or unhappiness depends much more on our outlook, on what we are looking for, on our perspective, than it does on our actual circumstances. To be sure, you can make yourself miserable if you choose. That's entirely within your rights. To do so, you simply dwell on what you don't have. Give place to bitterness and resentment and disappointment. View the glass as half empty. Refuse to look on the bright side of anything or even to believe that a bright side exists. But you'll be better off if you look instead for the good. Take notice of God's abundant provision, air to breathe, food to eat, clothes to wear. Start counting your blessings and keep a running list of them and follow the sage advice of Scripture. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if there is anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. I hope that next time you're tempted to dwell on the bad and the sad and the ugly, that you'll lift your focus and will instead start looking for the good around you, within you, and within the people around you. Make note of all the blessings of God. Change your focus. Start looking for the good and rejoice when you find it thanking God for His abundant provision and for the many, many blessings that we take for granted every day. Thanks so much for listening today. If you have a question you'd like to hear covered on this podcast, message me on Instagram at Flanders underscore family or contact me through my website, lovinglifeathome.com. Before you go, if you've been encouraged by something you've heard on the show, do me a favor and forward the link to a friend or head over to Loving Life at Home on Apple iTunes to subscribe and leave a written review of the show. Your doing so will help others find me so they can listen too. Until next time, I pray the Lord will bless your efforts to build a loving home life centered on Him.